Greetings, people of planet Earth. It must be episode 156 of the Scottish Liberty Podcast with me, Anthony Samroff, and that ranty, ranty man, Tam Laird. Back with us again. Sorry. I'm free. He's free. The excellent, the extraordinary Stefan Kinsella. Don't mispronounce it, Stephen. Don't be that guy. Don't be that guy. Only an idiot would do that. Thank you for joining us. Glad to be here with all four of us. You said there was you, Anthony Semeroff, and Tom and me. So that's four. <laughs> Excellent. I only see three people, though. So yeah. we're going to talk about um, you only, if those tuning in on Facebook, on YouTube, see that I kind of look weird because I'm trying this digital background, but Zoom thinks that my face is part of the background. So I, I, think, look, you're tr- I think you're triggering a lot of uh, light epilepsy people right I now. I think it's because your head looks like a planetoid. <laughs> <laughs> I am the moon that orbits the earth. It looks like a Marvel character, right? Like uh, Ego, the living yeah. planet or something. <laughs> So I guess we're going to talk about IP and stuff like that. Whoa. That's crazy. Yeah. Um, as some people know, probably heard a couple of weeks ago, I was debating this Adam Mossoff guy. And there may have been some conversation that we had once before, but we don't talk about that anymore. because Did, uh, did he laugh at any point during the... <laughs> <laughs> but let's just say that there were some things that could have been said in that discussion that we never speak of, we don't talk okay. about anymore <laughs> that weren't okay. discussed. So um, I guess a good place to start would be what you said. One of the things annoying about Adam Mossoff is he never actually defines IP. So what, how would you, how do you define IP? Well, so this is, um, all right, the, the definition is uh, intellectual property refers to a set of legal rights that is like an umbrella term that covers four or five different different types of statutory, mostly statutory rights, which are all not really related. So it basically just is a term that people came up with to lump together some, some different types of law, like the patent system. Okay which covers inventions and the copyright system, which covers artistic and creative works. And then the trademark system, which covers, you know, sources of goods and names, brand names, things like that. And then the trade secret system, which has some rights related to keeping secrets that you want your employees not to tell other people, things like that. And then maybe one or two other special things in modern right. times. So they're always, in a way, they're loosely related. And the reason the term is it bothers me is because it's a propaganda term. Um, it it was it was a new term that was invented, I think, in the 1800s when these new statutory systems, which were independent, right? Uh, the patent system, yeah. the copyright system. Um, say in the U.S., 17, I think 90, like right after the Constitution, the U.S. Constitution was ratified in 1789. The very next year, the Congress started enacting patent and copyright laws, um, and they were thought of and characterized as monopoly privilege grants. And some people were in favor and some were opposed, but no one had any um, uh, doubt that they were just special monopoly privilege grants by the state for a particular purpose to incentivize innovation or something like that which is why they only last uh, lasted at, in the beginning for about 14 years like a finite yep. time there were temporary 
things, sort of like infant industry protections or tariffs, how they protect local industries. You know, no one thinks of these things as natural rights or property rights. Um, so then the free market economists in the 1800s started, started getting alarmed at, at the rise over the world and the, and the, and the, and the modern world of, of, of the prevalence of patent and copyright, these per, monopoly privileges. And so the the people that were entrenched industries, depending upon these by now, the publishers, um, inventors of light bulbs, and you know these kind of new industries, things like this, um, they started defending these systems not on the utilitarian grounds, which is really the the main justification given, but saying that oh no, they're not artificial monopoly privileges. Uh, because everyone was getting skeptical of monopolies, right? Yeah. Even natural monopolies or free market monopolies or government granted monopolies, whatever. So they didn't want to call them monopolies. They didn't want to call them what they are, which is government granted privileges. Um, so they started calling them, they said they're their property rights. And everyone said, well, if, if it's a property right, as Anthony pointed out in his opening comments in the debate, um, there's not a scarcity thing. Like there's not a possibility of conflict. Anyone can use these ideas at the same time. So how is it a property right? And why does it only last for 17 years, 14 years? And mm -hmm. nowadays copyright's been extended from the original 14 years to a hundred plus years. It's crazy. Um, wow. Why would, if it's a property right, why would it expire at a certain arbitrary time? Um, and so the counter to that was, well, it's a property right, but it's a special type of property right. It's an intellectual. So they added the word intellectual to explain why it's different and it has to be treated differently in the law. But they wanted to call it a property right, which Mossoff did repeatedly. He just kept saying it's a property right because you can license it. It has an economic value. You can sell it. But that is just not an argument for why the law is a good idea. I mean, you could, I mean, honestly, you could make the same argument about about chattel slavery in the antebellum south in, the, in america yeah. they, they they were slaves were property they could be traded they had a market value um they contributed to the operation of plantations and you could ask all kinds of questions like you, instead of coming up with an argument justifying slavery and instead of responding directly to someone who explains why slavery is immoral and wrong you could just come up with with a fake rhetorical question and you could say but who would pick the cotton mm. which is not really a sincere question because that's not really what they're asking like if you say but who would pick the cotton what you're really saying is we all take it for granted that the cotton has to be picked that's our ultimate value like so whatever you propose, you're going to have to guarantee that the cotton will be picked. So mm -hmm. unless you can prove to me that a, the, uh, your free market system abolishing slavery is still going to result in cotton being picked, uh, you haven't satisfied your burden of proof to me to get rid of slavery, which is exactly what Mossoff and these guys are saying when they, when they say things like, well, how would you have um, – how would a novelist make money? How would uh, a pharmaceutical company – recoup their cost um, um, without IP law. So they ask us question, 
but the question is a loaded question because it's, it's, it takes for granted some assumptions that I don't share and that free market right. economists don't share because we don't think there's a guarantee to a profit, and there's no guarantee to recoup the costs of your investment. I mean what the hell mm. is that? Yeah. So one reason in my last thing, and I'm going to stop, shut up in a second because I talked over you guys and I ranted. I kept changing my subject many times. Um, I was so irritated. I didn't because, notice. <laughs> uh, well, you know, Ma, he, he has he, he poses as he doesn't. Um, so he acts like we're all friends, like we're on the same side. Right, like you and he, it's a, it's a jolly little friendly debating club, but it's not. I, I mean, the reason I got so annoyed by his l laughing at the at the absurd examples people will say. So someone will say, "Well, maybe someone will use trademark and they will get a trademark on COVID," and and then he laughs and it's like, "Yeah, but this is like." You're laughing as if you're in on the joke, but you're really in support of a legal system that does lead to these absurd consequences. Mm. And I yeah. gave up cataloging on – I had a website. I had a post which I would update every few months. It was called the, the Trademark, Copyright, and Patent Horror Files. I just gave up updating it because every month there's just another insane example, someone going to prison for uploading a Wolverine movie. Uh, people dying of Fabry's disease because there's only one manufacturer of the drug because th they have a patent on it. Um, uh, you know, uh, the guy that invented RSS, which we're benefiting from by podcasting and all mm -hmm. this stuff, Aaron Swartz committing suicide because he was facing basically a life in prison for uploading some 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 academic articles to the internet using a Columbia. University uh, internet connection, uh, and you you can dismiss these examples, and then so Mossoff's reply would be something like, "Every time you would come up with an example, Anthony, he would say something like, well, there's abuses in regular property law too, right? Or it's not perfect either, or there's gray areas too, or the courts might get it wrong from time to time. So he keeps wanting to." push it back into this analogy or metaphor and to show that it's like property rights, mm. which is just – he's actually kind of correct. Uh, it, uh, legal Lawyers are good at making money. They will adapt to a system, and they will – and then the business people will find a way to profit off of the given – Legal rules. I'm sure yeah. that people made money off of selling uh, selling uniforms to the Nazi guards for the concentration camps during uh, the Nazi German period. Yeah, Hugo Boss. Okay. Yeah, there was. Um, yeah, Volkswagens and chemical yeah. suppliers are uh, Zykon. Uh, the whole deal. Uh, is IBM. Like, yeah. Yeah, people there's make money. So what? Yeah, and and so what? There's a couple of things there. I mean, a lot of things that have been considered to be public goods have been shown to be able to provide be provided by the market i mean obviously people would think how how's a radio station going to charge its um, customers but they put ads on i think the argument that he might have made against your like because one, one of my arguments would have been i couldn't throw it in because it was strapped for time but it's like look Millions of people are dying in Africa because they can't ship generic cheap medications because of copyright. 
sorry, and patent laws, patent laws rather, you know, millions of people are dying. I think his argument was, well, you know, you could say the same, you know, there's billionaires in the world and we could just, uh, millions, of people, millions of people are dying because we don't uh, shoot Jeff Bezos down to $1 billion and give the rest of his money to Africa. Well, not, so not just that, but if you take this argument, I mean, first of all, what is an objectivist? Because objectivists used to be kind of principled. They were minarchists. Okay, let's grant them that. I can forgive Ayn Rand her, and her followers of their minarchism, but at least they were serious minarchists, except for the IP issue. That was their big mistake, I think. But, but they at least had principles. But w when did this principle come about that the way we evaluate whether we ought to have a law or whether it's a good law – is whether or not some policy goal is reached, like enough. So, so for example, you could argue like some people do, like literally, and some free market types do. I can send you links to this. It's astounding. Um, instead of having, or in addition to having, it depends upon who you talk to, um, instead of having a patent system, which gives some kind of property rights-like incentive system, allegedly, to people um, – uh, innovating because they're able to recoup their costs by basically using the force of the government to stop competition for 17 years, right? So that's the idea. You could have government subsidies of innovation. Um, now, I think even Terence Keeley, who's a friend of mine and pretty good on this, and uh, Boldrin and Levine, who are the kind of free market utilitarian guys who argue uh, the empirical argument against patent and IP in their book against intellectual monopoly, yeah. even they sort of lean because they had these utilitarian or um, uh, consequentialist leanings, and they'll say, well, it'd be more efficient or maybe better if the government just um, subsidized innovation with, with basically a system of prizes or awards, which they do already, by the way, with mm -hmm. the military-industrial complex and with uh, the National Science Foundation like in the U.S. and I mean, they're already doing that, yeah. but, but, but the point is this. According to the theory, this utilitarian theory of IP advocates um, like Alex Tabarrok and Richard Epstein, these kind of guys, and the mainstream, even the more mainstream guys, right, like Stiglitz and these guys, um, um, they think that if with no patent law, let's say, you'd have – some innovation. They're, they're, not, they're not dishonest or stupid enough to say that no one would ever invent anything, or they, they wouldn't say that no one would ever, ever paint a painting or write a, a song or write a novel without copyright law. What they say, the more honest ones, they're a little bit more sophisticated, is they say that there's a certain amount of production, but it's an underproduction because they believe in this public, this public uh, this public goods argument, this 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 market failure argument, basically, they think that the existence of um, this free rider problem, right, and the yeah. inability to recoup your costs because people can copy compete with you too easily because they just have to copy your formula or whatever. Instead of making a new factory that competes with your car factory, they have to. They, all they have to do is copy the formula, which is not true, by the way. This is not. Yeah. You can't just compete with someone by copying what they did. This is all. This is also all false. But the point is. They think that there's a suboptimal amount of production of intellectual goods in a, in a state of nature, let's say, or even in a minarchist government with no IP law. But you can go – you can increase that amount by having a reasonable amount of patent and copyright protection. But if you go beyond that, then you start hurting it. So they think of this bell curve idea, and there's an optimum 
And most of them had this intuitive sense that we're too far on the wrong side of it. Like if you ask Mossoff, he probably would admit that 130 years for copyright term when it used to be 14 is maybe a little bit too long. <laughs> he might say that. He might even admit yeah. that 17 years for a patent is too long for some industries, but he probably doesn't want to cede the ground right now. And some people in his camp are so consistent and principled, they basically advocate infinite or perpetual That's term. so silly. Yeah. But, it seems, but they're the ones that are yeah. consistent, like like Lysander Spooner and some yeah. Randians that I know. They actually advocate, and J. Neil Shulvin, my 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 friend who died last year, um, they advocated basically infinite terms, at least for copyright, yeah. if not for patents. But it would seem Maybe. absurd to me. Like, for example, I could decide that I'm going to go out uh, tomorrow and I'm going to sell a whole load of sandwiches. So I sit in my house, I buy the bread and I buy everything, and I I make a whole shitload of sandwiches. I go out in the street. I set up my stall, and lo and behold, who's just set up a stall 10 yards down the road from me? Oh, it's Samarov. And he's managed to source his bread cheaper than I did, and he managed to right. source his ham cheaper than I right. did, and right. he's selling the sandwiches cheaper than I did. And suddenly, I'm at right. a loss because nobody's buying my sandwiches. Somebody should have yeah. to recoup. How do I recoup the cost of making all those sandwiches? Right. Well, and, well, and, the, and, and the honest answer to that question yeah. is – when you say this, people think you're being a smartass, or you're yeah. being. Um, but the answer is your your business, your failed business model is yeah. not my problem. I mean, Correct. You the, the point of law and justice and libertarian theory is to favor a set of conditions that give everyone security of property rights, and, and that would generate a free market and probably capitalism of some type if it was allowed to flower. And then within that system, it's up to you to figure out how to make a yeah. profit. Um, let, let me uh, let me let me finish that thought, but let me return to one thing I, I, I forgot to finish. So what the the point I was making about this bell curve idea is that even according to the best interpretation of these utilitarians, uh, which I think Mossoff really is, even though so like Richard Epstein is more like an honest advocate of IP law from a utilitarian perspective, and Alex Tabarrok, these kind of guys. Uh, but Mossoff pretends like he thinks it's a right or a natural right, which is, by the way, dishonest and wrong. Uh, it's wrong. I won't say it's dishonest. His interpretation of Jefferson and Locke, I think if you look at the scholarship, there's a guy named Ronan Deasley. He may be Scottish. I'm not sure. But uh, the literature is pretty clear that no one thought of IP rights as natural rights. And just because you can call them a property right and then – that doesn't mean it is. But but here's my point. Even the best interpretation of this argument that um, we need to have some limited term of monopolistic protection of your ideas so you can recoup your cost, right? And so there's a bell curve, all right? It's the maximum. The point is – so imagine this pharmaceutical example that they keep throwing out, and that was the yeah. whole impetus of the debate. It was about um, – the, the development of drugs, and, and let's get back to that too in a second. Let me keep yeah. – I need, I need a device sure. that can help me uh, unstack my stuff like in a reverse Polish notation fourth language or something. I can remember where I left off and re recurse myself, but um, um, the, the – the, uh, so the point is according to, say, Mossoff's theory and all of his colleagues' theory, um, You'd have an underproduction of, say, innovation in pharmaceuticals if you don't have a patent system because there are just some drugs that are too expensive to do R&D on 
that you might lose money on. And if you at the margin, if you can't get a, a few extra hundred million dollars because of with a, with a patent protection safety valve, plus this uh, this what, what did you call it, Anthony Green something Green Green feeling or Green uh, um, evergreen yeah, evergre evergreening. evergreening. Yeah. yeah. Um, by adding new improvements or using the FDA system itself to sort of extend your patent, even when the patent's expired, like that yeah. that drug patent that this guy got in the U.S. about three years ago, and he, he raised the price by ten thousand percent. Everyone accused patents of that, but it was already off of patents, but it was still yeah. protected by an FDA monopoly, which is like the patent. So there's ways of basically. You're right. Anyway. The point is, even according to Mossoff's theory, there are there are some pharmaceutical innovations at the margin, even with a patent reward being added on, that won't get that won't get made, right? So so logically, the government should come in and have a trillion dollar uh, bonus system to get people rewards, which the government is flirting with doing right now with mm. all these companies searching for vaccines. Right? They're talking about, well, we have to incentivize them. And so in other words, what if the incentive provided by the patent system, which is at best an extra incentive on top of the free market incentive, what if that's not enough? So but there's always there's always innovations that we're missing out on because the government is just not doing enough to tweak things in in the failures of market free market capitalism. But to be honest, does that sound like an argument Ayn Rand would be making? I mean, she was the ultra capitalist. What the hell is this stuff? This market failure stuff? Yeah, this um, sword slices both ways as well because you can say, well, without the guarantee of a patent, who's going to bother putting up the money to research that that? Um, drug, but the same argument goes the other way. Well, with a patent, who's going to bother to put up the money to research that drug when someone might just beat them by a couple of weeks? Um, well, that was that was the thing I thought he, it was funny. So you he, brought that up, and he didn't address like so. The, he squir so, he squirmed out of it kind of. So by saying, so right well, so yeah. So right now we have what two hundred companies around the world, maybe more. Oh, they're all searching for a vaccine. Now, why are they doing it? I don't know. Is it is it humanitarian? Is it eleemosynary? Is it for profit? Is it in the hopes that they will be the first and get a patent? I mean, I'm not actually even clear. But the point is, like you said, like what if there's the 201st company that's like, fuck it, I'm not even going to try because even if I put all this money into it, if someone else files the patent first, um, then I won't be able to do even what I've invented and. Mm -hmm. So, so it, 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 it clearly – you can imagine cases where it dissuades innovation. But back to, Tom, your example about the sandwich yeah. shop or, yeah. or something. So here's the essence, I think, of one of the mistakes that's made by um, the IP guys. And see, here's what annoys me is that they – people like them will call people like me a commie or a socialist. You know, If you're against yeah. IP, it's because you're for idea communism, right? And and because you don't appreciate the importance of the intellect and all this stuff. It's like, you know, I don't believe that I should own my wife or my or my son's love for me or the memories of my grandfather, but because I don't think I should own them doesn't mean I think they're not important, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, it's just there's a different so that's number 1. Just because something is not an ownable tradable good doesn't mean that you don't value it. I mean, we value I mean, the Randians value abstract philosophy and uh, uh, physics research, but those yeah. things are not covered by the patent system or mathematics, right? 
Oh, yeah. does, so does that mean that because they would agree that the patent system doesn't cover mathematical algorithms, the laws of physics, and philosophical research because they're too abstract to be covered, does that mean that they don't value philosophy, math, and physics? No. So the whole, the whole, that whole premise is ridiculous. Yeah. Um, but th so here's the fundamental point. The example you gave is normal free market competition, and what yeah. we sometimes forget is that, yeah, we we all cheer on a harmonious system of rules that allows us to live in society with each other, and then it generates the possibility of comp of cooperation, living in civilization with other people, the division of labor, trade. And yes, competition and the possibility of profit and rising standards of living, all that kind of stuff, right? But one thing that we sort of lose sight of is that profit is an unnatural thing, right? Because the, the natural rate of profit, the market's always tending towards some kind of e some kind of equilibrium. It's, it's never reached because it's always changing. It's dynamic. But whenever you make a profit, that's like an unnatural thing. Anything that's above the natural rate of interest is sort of unnatural. And what you're doing is you're sending a signal out by the price system to the world because everything you do is public when you have a market, right? It's all public. Hey, this guy has a sandwich shop or a pizza yeah. delivery shop or yeah. a new way of doing A, B, or C, making vehicles that are self-powered, you know, something like that. Mm -hmm. If it's profitable, that means that you're you're sell, you're pleasing your customers, which is a good thing. But everyone knows that this is short-lived. You can't rely upon a God-given right to have this 28% profit margin for the next 1,000 years because there are going to be competitors that will see what you're doing, and they will mimic you, and they will start what we call yeah. it competing with you, and we're all used to that. But the thing is we all think – we all see a certain amount of uh, uh, friction in that process because for uh, for someone to – Anthony to come up with a competing sandwich shop, he has to go hire people, come up with a design, rent a shop, come up with the capital to do it. It might take him a couple of years, right? Um, so for a while, you have sort of this – it's easier for you to make a higher profit than it will be yeah. later. That's just kind the way of it works. Kind of mating season, I believe they call it. But, but what the IP guys think is that for some industries, a much heavier percentage of your – of the value proposition that you're counting on is based upon a simple design or a replicable pattern or information as opposed to uh, scarce resources that are part of your capital goods and machinery. So in other words, if you're a millionaire because you sell Harry Potter novels, then it's true that the, the value of the paper on the books is pretty small compared to um, – what you can sell the, the impatterned book for. That is a book with the ink arranged in a certain way to spell certain words that people want to buy. And the ideas – so here's the idea that the IP guys are saying. They're saying that in a normal free market, yeah, competition can be tolerated because it's not that easy to compete with people, and so you have a resting period. You can you can make a new idea, and if, you work, if, it, if it works, you can make some profit for a while, and you can just – Take a breath and sigh and relieve yourself and just like oh, I can make money for a while before I have to worry about these 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 uh, irritating competitors. But if you're making something that is easier to replicate, like a pharmaceutical, allegedly, which again is not that easy to replicate, um, or a book, or a song, 
something that other people can easily compete with, they get nervous. In other words, they think if it, if it gets too easy to compete with you, then the government needs to come in and slow down competition. They need yeah. to put barriers in the way. This is exactly why they – the more honest ones, they call this IP law is the imposition of artificial scarcity. So in real property and in ter- scarce things, you know, tangible objects, there is actual scarcity, and it results in this slower competition process, and it results in um, the jerky world that we live in where profit is possible. Uh, you can maintain it for a while, but then gradually your profit margins get eroded down to the natural rate of interest, and people compete with you, and you have to keep innovating and pleasing yeah. your customers and staying on top of things. Um, but for goods that are more intellectual-based or pattern-based, it's just yeah. too easy. That's just intolerable. It's just too easy for people to compete with us, so we need to impose a scarcity where none exists in the realm yeah. of ideas to make it work more like… The tangible world of trade that we're used to. Well, even with- so, they're basically trying to—they're trying to take half of human action. Human action is the use of scarce resources, which are naturally scarce, and we have to economize, and the use of ideas and information that makes us more profitable and use things more efficiently, right? Over time, yeah. um, they're trying to hamper the the second part, which is naturally infinite and abundant. They're trying to intentionally hobble it just so that it resembles the other, which is why Matsov says that it's a property right. He's yeah. right. The government has treated it like a property right. It's possible for the government to do that. Congratulations. Yeah. But this, but this, this kind of attitude kind of also creeps into uh, um, what you call physical trade, and it, you know everybody's job is suddenly um, or oh, mine's is special. Yeah, I get it. We should have a free market. But when it comes to this particular thing that I do, that's kind of different, and I need tariffs to protect myself. Everything else, yeah, everybody yeah. else's job, I understand. Yeah, definitely, there should be competition. But in what I do, that's really special, and that needs protected. And I think it's just an extension of that to artistic types. Right. And the artistic types have got their special thing that, that you don't understand and needs to be protected. It's different. And I think Anne Rand was one of them because she was a writer. Yeah, she was. She wanted her pro, her uh, books to be protected, and because Anne Rand said it, the objectivists believe it. it it's really that that simple. Because whatever Anne Rand said is the word of God. I mean, I mean what, what, what if a, what if let me ask you what if a poet told Adam Mossoff right now? Um, because do you think poets make any money now under a copyright system? Poets don't make any money. Everyone knows that. Okay, maybe they do, but you know how they do? By becoming songwriters or something. Like they basically use their skills in another they, – they find a way. They leverage it. But the point is copyright law doesn't guarantee that everything is going to be successful. Uh, mm-hmm. Okay, if I write a book of poetry, I can use copyright law to – to sue someone and use the power of the courts to prevent them from copying it like anyone really wants to anyway. Yeah. But right. copyright law doesn't guarantee that poets make an income. So what if some hippy-dippy poet guy told Mossoff, well, under, your, under the system right now of Western capitalism where everything is profit-oriented and people only care about blah, 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 um, your copyright system doesn't guarantee me an income, but po- – you don't think poetry is not important, do you? So why don't we have the national um, 
foundation. Uh, what do you, I don't even know uh, the the, the yeah. National Endowment for the Humanities should give grants to deserving poets and people of merit so that this work is not lost for the ages. Blah blah blah. I mean, those give them ideas, Stefan. I, you know what? Everything I say, they actually already say. So right. I, I, I've got a couple I've thought of, and I, I, I'm, I'm afraid of posting some of them because, yeah, I might give them some ideas. So I, it's particularly interesting from the Randians because Atlas Shrugged is absolutely full of examples of inferior businessmen running to the government to get protections on their industry. Uh, one of the interesting things is after the debate, someone posted to me on Twitter most charitably. Hey, Anthony, if you don't believe in intellectual property, why do you have books on Amazon? Uh, I didn't give the question an honest answer because I didn't think it was an honest question. I thought it's, the guy not, was, it's not. It's not. The guy it's was just going to be a dick. But, well, it doesn't look very good to me if I don't have books on Amazon. It is one of the main places where people search your name. But hey, People don't actually know how hard it is to get your books to people. If someone is going to fucking forge copies of Universal Basic Income for and against and go and sell them like they do out in, um, where I was in India, you know, lo lots of copies of well-known books stacked up to sell, sell people, they reprint them. Hey, that's good for me. I'd like the word to get out to yeah. as many people as possible. Um, I... Uh, you know, Nine Inch Nails managed to make a profit when this whole Napster started thing started by connecting with fans, and they did just release their album. They, they released a jewel case box set thing, and if 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 you were a super fan, you could get an exclusive performance for a couple of grand and stuff like yeah. that. So so the, people find they just ways have the box to a bit more clever. People, yeah, yeah. People need to find ways to monetize things. They found ways to monetize the radio airwaves. If you've written a great book and lots of people read it, you can crowdfund it and say, do you know what, realistically, I need 80 grand to take, the, to take a year and a half off to write this book. Right. Um, you know, well, and people there, will find this, ways. There's a great quote by uh, Francis Ford Coppola, who's, you know, the, uh, is he the Godfather guy or one of these guys? Yeah, or, or, he's, he's Godfather and, in Apocalypse Now. So he's got this kind of offhand comment about like, you know, when you try to make it as a new young hustler artist, maybe you wake up at four in the morning and you write your novel for like three hours and then you go to work for your day job. And and so basically he was saying that, you know, maybe one method is just be your own benefactor. I mean, that's what I do. Like everything I like this podcast, I'm not getting paid for this. Nope. Why am I doing this? <laughs> Why the fuck are we doing it? <laughs> but that's the point. This should be impossible according to yeah. Uh, these guys that think everything has to be, you know, it's part of everyone has a complex life and they, they support their own values. They go to church or they go to museums or they go to an art show and they basically have a job doing this during the day and they make and they combine their activities and they basically subsidize things that they like. There's a there's a breakdown between consumption and leisure. But but let me go back to your Atlas example, because this is interesting. For some reason, The Fountainhead's the first book I read that sort of got me on this road, but now I, I can't stand The Fountainhead because like everything about it drives me nuts. Like it's not libertarian. It's basically a weird narcissistic guy who hates his clients and won't listen to what they want and uh uh and 
quasi-rapes a woman and also engages in intellectual property terrorism, right? He blows up yeah. this – someone else's property. Okay, granted it's a state-sponsored project, but he was involved in it, so if anything, he's guilty. I mean – but so the whole thing is not libertarian yeah. at all. I think it's, Anthony's friend called it the book in which everybody's everybody in it is a dick for no apparent <laughs> reason. Right. I mean the only thing about it is it does teach some young people uh, who are – looking for some uh, excuse to be um to be uh, to stand up for themselves and to be individual uh, uh, the best review i saw on amazon was someone who's like i'm an architect and due to this shitty book there's so many people coming to the architecture yeah, right, field right. wanting to do whatever they want it's just drawn a bunch of arseholes to become architects <laughs> there's but, loads but, of parts that i love in the fountainhead but i still don't see why howard Rourke couldn't have just built one or two shitty buildings to make himself yeah, no, a no, millionaire and, and then he could yeah. make all the crazy uh, modern art that he wanted it's really funny because um Anne Rand hated Schoenberg, you know, the atonal composer. She just hated atonal music. But right. if, she, if she had actually taken the time to study the philosophy of atonal music when they came out, it was literally the philosophy of Howard Rourke. It was like all... <laughs> That's they interesting. Were, their, their ideology was all about that, not staying where the... Not staying where the... Um, the movement's not stagnating in music, moving things forward. Their their music was like Howard Rourke's crazy buildings that no one liked. Well, to, 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 her, to, to her credit and to her followers' credit, they're they're a little bit vague about, or, or they're not insistent that her aesthetic theory is is like an ironclad part of her. Like her core philosophy is just the former branches, you know, uh, ethics, uh, metaphysics. Um, what epistemology and politics like but aesthetics sort of like the her romantic realism and all this stuff yeah they sort of admit that that was more of her opinion than really yeah but i mean i saw her in an interview saying something i think it was realism wasn't art and she said and i can explain to you why it's not art so she did actually believe that um i think romantic oh, no, she she did she did think that yeah she thought art was a selective recreation of reality so I guess realism would be like if there's nothing original, selective about it, you're not selecting anything. You're like a photograph. Some people argue that photographs shouldn't have had copyright protection because you're just depicting a fact about the universe. But then people started saying, well, there's some original uh, uh, skill involved in selecting the angle and the lighting and the shutter speed and the film grain or whatever. I think it's all it's all nonsense, but uh, but no. So let me just. But on Atlas, Atlas is way better, I believe. It's got a few pro patent themes, but they're kind of muted and they're not dominant. Atlas is way more libertarian and a way better book, uh, in from our point of view, I think, than the Fountainhead. Mm -hmm. But there's a couple of interesting things about it. Um, so she does have like a couple things where the government is portrayed as evil because they're they're taking Reardon's patents for his Reardon medal. But – and that echoes what Mossoff was sort of saying about um, about uh, the the uh, uh, some of the pat the pharmaceutical patent issues. But uh, when he was talking about um, the, the Wright brothers example, when he was trying to say that that example has been debunked, and we can get into that if you want. I think his entire explanation for that is just fallacious. Um, um, yeah, you can expand on that if you want. It's a loaded so so 
what Anthony pointed out was this commonly given example that the U.S. air, air uh, aviation industry was delayed and impeded uh, for a, a decade or two. Uh, As was the car industry. Right, because of patent battles by the Wright brothers and things like that, and and by the time of uh, World War One, the French and I think I think you even mentioned the Turks, which I didn't know about. Like they had already been more advanced because they weren't subject to U.S. patents. You see, so it's a regional system; it's a national system. Anyway, so and then uh, apparently, the what I'm gathering, I don't know the history and detail of this, and the guys talking on it, like Anthony and Mossoff, are not really deep patent law expert, so I'm not sure exactly, but I think what you were saying, I think what happened was probably around World War um, One or something after that, um, Roosevelt or whoever was in charge, they they came together and they had some regulation or some law where they, they basically forced what is like a compulsory patent license on the industry until the 70s. Okay. Um, and Mossoff sort of refers to that as like, oh, so the Roosevelt administration, which was socialist, came up with this fake story to justify taking their property. But you understand that the government has been granting these patent privilege monopolies, and if the government restricts their scope, that's not taking a property. It's, 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 it's reducing an unjustified privilege they had granted before. And furthermore, he mentioned right after that… That the that um, like the U.S. aviation industry um, uh, continued to uh, be the pioneer of the world for decades. Presumably, I think he means after World War One, right until the 70s. But that was during the period where the patents were, according to him, obliterated. So it's like, well, how could the U.S. industry be so innovative for 40 years, 50 years, if the patents had been hobbled by Roosevelt? Like the whole story. Um, it makes no sense. But mm. on Atlas, let me just say one thing. You have at the end, if you remember, this Judge Narragansett writing – he's basically writing the new constitution for the free world, right? for Galt's Gulch, which is kind of an anarchist, which is always glossed over by Randians. Um, but it's basically he's taking the American constitution, and he's editing it, like striking out a word here or there. But that would be copyright infringement according to strict Randians. Right. You'd be stealing someone else's property, number one. And number two, by, by the way, by that same logic, um, if you are such an America file like Rand was, and you think that the, the U.S. constitutional system was so genius and gave us these, this brilliant system of government that has allowed us to be wealthy, well, theoretically, the founding fathers or whoever the guys you want to give credit – for coming up, for in basically inventing this new system, they own it. They have a copyright or a patent in that system, and they have a right to charge everyone who's using it a royalty, which mm. we would normally call taxes. So basically the entire Randian idea on copyright could justify taxes because yeah. the government gives us all these great things. Why should the government – by the way, why should the government be nonprofit? It's, the whole idea is stupid. Yeah. Why should the government be a minimalist government that just takes in barely enough to survive? Why why shouldn't they charge the going rate for their services because they yeah. own it? And, and the other thing was if you remember in Atlas Shrug, remember the whole little mid-story with Dagny and Hank, and they hired that the, that physicist guy um, who eventually left and got recruited by Galt, um, yeah. the younger guy, because they found Galt's old machine in that abandoned right. 20th century motor core. 
and they they paid him to try to reverse engineer it, which, yeah. by the way, would be a, another violation of intellectual property or patent rights according to Rand's stuff yeah. because they're taking an invention that Galt created, and they're just tinkering with it, and they're learning from him. They, they don't have the right to do that. So there's a, there's a lot of examples in Atlas Shrugged where she just – if she was applying her own IP law right. consistently, yeah. she could have even had that plot device. Yeah, it's not like Dagny Tiger invented railways. You know? Yeah, and if if there was IP <laughs> on railways, then Dagny Tiger wouldn't have been allowed to make her own rail lines. It is a weird idea that just because one person comes up with every with something, everyone else suddenly needs to alter their behavior. Um, you know, we're not allowed to. It's like it's a weird view. So everyone else is not allowed to use their yeah. own property the way they see fit because someone. That's something. Well, and, and the and the argument I hear often, which drives me insane. So, so first of all, let's just talk about patents because the copyright is, is different. Because mo it is true that most copyrighted works are they're original. Because in other words, it would be unlikely someone would write exactly the same novel later. However, everything's influenced by everything else. So nothing is a hundred percent original. But but copyrighted works, I would say, are original. But for patented works, most inventions come about when their time has come, and they're basically inevitable, right? Yes. And they can only come about at a certain time in history um, when the preconditions are, re are ready for it. The, the material um, forces of production are suffici sufficiently mature, as Marx Yeah, you, you, you couldn't have a transistor invented by the Greeks, but in, in, in 1950, someone's going to invent the transistor, right? So. Right. Uh, and this is a good thing about human society, by the way. But th what drives me nuts is if you if you say something like, um, "Well, what's wrong with uh, what's wrong if if I learn from other people and imitate them and compete with them and use a similar design that they're doing, like for a smartphone or for the idea of the auto a four wheeled automobile or a four legged stool, whatever you know, um, a kite, an airplane, light bulb." Um, the answer will be this kind of s snarky, smart-ass retort, and they'll say something like, um, just come up with your own idea. And I'm like, well, is that like a directive? To, I mean, is that supposed to be an argument? Is it a question? Is it serious? I mean, the question is, what is wrong with copying what you learn from other people that they, that they basically broadcast to you by making their ideas public? What's wrong with it? And the answer just come up with your own idea is not an answer. I mean if you just think about the implications of this, it would basically kill human life. Uh, like what if only Ford and his heirs could have a four-wheeled car or Mercedes or whoever yeah. came up with it first, right? And so everyone else just come up with their own car, just make one with six wheels or or – if the railroads now have a certain width of their wheel spacing because of the Roman chariots from 2,000 years ago, uh, just come up with their own system. So then all mm. the railroads in the world would have different spacings, and they would not be compatible with each other. You know, uh, you mm. everyone has to have a different uh, size of cargo crates. They ship the ship containers that they put onto ships because you can't use exactly yeah. what I did. Just come up with your own. Yeah, it's like. What, what, it's not an, it's not even an argument. I well, I mean, the, the automobile the automobile one's a good one because I know Henry Ford was locked up in court for about twenty years trying to get his vehicle onto the market because some asshole 
had just it was just that he looked at he looked at um carriages and he, he thought so and he looked at steam engines and he thought well somebody someday is going to put the steam engine and the carriage together and you're not going to need horses anymore so he basically scribbled down i can't remember the guy's name he basically just scribbled down his idea of a horseless carriage right. which was there was nothing behind he had no idea how to make it he just right. done this drawing and patented it and Ford and other automobile manufacturers had to pay this guy loads of money just so that he would release, you know. The, yeah. and, 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 and people don't, they don't understand. I mean, capitalism is so, and the free market is so powerful that we're surviving even now with the hundreds of millions of people that we've just artificially unemployed because of the COVID lockdown yeah. crap. Um, there's all these regulations and these implicit taxes people pay, and the the little people don't see it. They don't understand all the royalties and all the buy-offs and all the regulatory fees and higher costs at Apple and motor companies that they have to pay just to stay in existence. And people just get used to it. They absorb the cost. They're paying the cost, of course, because the price of their goods is higher or the yeah. innovation is lower, right, one way or the other. But if, if you just imagine also like – um, every year, every month probably, at least every few years, there's an innovation like in in automobiles or trains or airplanes, yeah. like something that is pro-safety oriented. Like you know, the idea of these windshields that have this plastic layer in the middle that doesn't shatter or just seat belts or uh, airbags. Uh, an airbags, anti-lock brakes. A lot of these things are actually patented and for a while your competitors – they literally cannot put that innovation into their own car because it would be illegal, and therefore some people like die, right? It's funny. It's, yeah. You, you, you probably technically can't even put it in your own car. So, um, no, you can't. This is the, this is, and this is more because of copyright than patent because right now you have people – because everything is computerized now, right? So like if you buy a, a tractor or something or a big truck, it comes with software. And that's protected by copyright. Now. Oh, jeez! And so now the manufacturers like John Green or, or yeah, not John Deere tractors, they've been suing people that modify their own uh, tractors just to keep them like uh, you know up to date with the latest techniques or something like that because they're basically violating the Digital Millennium Copyright Act, which has an anti-circumvention pr procedure, which means that you can't use a technology device to to reverse engineer some copyrighted code even if it's not copyright infringement so that's how crazy it is like even if it's not copyright infringement for you to do what you're doing because it's fair use or something like that you still can't circumvent the protection that was built in to try to stop copyright infringement yeah. um and, and you have crazy things like that and you have like uh, uh who's the big uh the big uh Mon monsanto or the big agricultural company that's in the u.s it. they sue people for like if you're a farmer and your neighbor's your neighboring farmer has some some seeds that are patented seeds yeah. that he planted and he bought yeah, and the wind carries some of those seeds onto my property and so my property is now growing some of these genetically modified patented seeds from Monsanto they can send the government goons out and burn your fields down or force it's insane it's totally yeah. insane yeah 
So, and this is what these guys support. This is what gets me. It, it, this is what they support. I mean, and these are not just anomalies. These are not yeah. just like uh, hard cases. This is the essence of what IP law means. It means yeah. that you can stop someone from using their own private resources as they wish, even though they're not committing a tort against anyone else. And this is the this is the dishonest argument that people. I don't. I don't know. If Adam raised that in his debate with you, but his type will always say – they'll say, well, you're objecting to IP law because it limits what you can do with your own property, but all property rights do that. Like that's the next argument that they always use. So in other words, that, then they'll come up with the, the, the tired refrain, well, my property – your property right in your fist ends where my nose begins, right? But that is sort of a dishonest or it's at least a mistaken argument because – the whole argument assumes property rights. Like it assumes you have a property right in your nose, right? Um, what that argument really means is that you do have the right to use your resources as long as you don't invade other people's property rights. And if you do, then that's the tort that you're committing. And the problem is what you're doing is your action. So the fact that I can't swing my fist at your nose is not. A limitation on the property rights in my fist. It's a respect for the property rights in your nose, and it means that there are some actions I can't commit. So when you look at it like that, then the question would be, okay, if I see someone doing something like making a better mousetrap or making an airplane or making a pharmaceutical, and if I use my own resources to duplicate something similar to that and sell it on the market, what action did I commit that – violated the borders or committed a trespass against any of your property, and you can't find anything because there's no – that's why the legislation had to invent these things because they weren't torts before. Right? That's yeah. why patent and copyright didn't come out of the common law, right? Um, and, and then the retort will be something like, well, it, it is a violation of your property. It's a violation of your intellectual property rights, so you can see that their whole argument is circular. Because their question is to show why they should be regarded as a property right. You can't just say the government defines it as a property right, and therefore it's a trespass, which justifies calling it a property right in the first place. Like their whole argument is is totally uh, circular and loaded. Yeah. So real quick before we finish up, I guess I've got two questions. Hey, I haven't told my Leonard Skinner story yet. So anyway, get on with it. Well, we'll save that for the end, everyone who wants to hear his Leonard Skinner story. (laughs) Uh, First one is, I guess you you said to me in a private chat that Rothbard's views on copyright were confused or as on IP. It'd be interesting to hear just a little bit about that. And the other question is, you said that the debate wasn't really a conducive environment to explore these um, issues. So second question is, if it was a, if I were in a conducive environment, is there anything that you'd add that you haven't already that I could have said that I didn't? Give I mean, I've struck. I, I so I've I've meandered over the years with debating and discussing and talking, uh, say for the last twenty years, and so I've I've stumbled across different ways of approaching the issue or formulating it, um, and it depends upon the audience, of course. Um, but the only way you can really do it is to summarize the principled case. Like you have to explain what are we doing here? What's the whole purpose of this endeavor? 
to why do we care about justice? What is justice? What are property rights? Why do we have them? What is their nature? Think about it, think about it, think about it. And then what are IP rights? Think about what they really are, which most people don't quite understand because they're not specialists and this is an arcane area of law. So you have to explain that and then you say, okay, now think about the original purpose of law that we talked about. Does this make sense? Can it be justified? No. So you have to build a systematic case and that's hard to do in 10 minutes. Um, you can do a sketch of it in, in 10 minutes, uh, but most people eyes glaze over and they don't understand half the terms you're using. So mm. the only way to do it is to have an hour long or three hour long or six hour long. Right. So it's, it's difficult. Um, so I guess the best thing to do is to shoot holes in the case of other people and to try to make it clear who the burden of proof is on. Um, I thought you did a reasonably good job of that in what you were doing because you at least focused upon the the distinction between scarce resources and non-scarce. And so that was the fundamental point. And again, he never addressed that point, and he never did address the COVID point like, well, what if there are people that are not looking now, or what if there are people that are shut out that are looking now and they find something because someone else gets a patent first? I, I guess his answer was this Mayflower answer that, oh, well, whoever gets to the, the new world first should get it. That's just part of capitalism. But that's not a justification for, for, for this, this system. Um, now, on the Rothbard question, um, so if you view IP rights as a unitary whole, which I do not because I think they're all distinct, and this is, again, part of the problem is I, you have to explain what's wrong with the patent system, what's wrong with the copyright system, what's wrong with the trade secret system, what's wrong with the trademark system. What's wrong with defamation law? They all have their own distinct. It's like it's like you know, just because I'm against the drug war doesn't mean that I'm also against um, uh, having an American type foreign policy. Like there, you have to analyze each issue separately. But because our opponents have lumped these things together, we have no choice but to use their term and then to try to find common features, which they've done, and to try to say, well, here's what's wrong in general. But then that makes your case um, more abstract. So. I believe defamation law, which is not typically regarded as by law professors as a type of IP law, it should be because it's very similar to trademark law, right? They both are about protecting reputation rights. They're both are protecting some kind of intangible value that is not a scarce resource, right? Your reputation. Um, so, and not coincidentally, the Randians support defamation law um, as well as. Um, uh, trademark law and other types of IP law. Um, now, Rothbard, to his credit, was completely against defamation law. Um, I think if he had been more consistent, he would have seen that this would also be a good argument against trademark law. Now, trademark law is not one of the two big evils, so he, he I don't think he ever focused on trademark law. He mostly talked about patent and copyright. Now, on patent law, he said he opposed it. His reasons were a little bit um, – they weren't horrible reasons, but they weren't the main issue. But basically, yeah. he thought patents distorted the, uh, or he called, I think he used the word skewed. It skewed the, um, uh, it skewed innovation and research, like uh, from protectable inventions to, I'm sorry, for, um, from unprotectable inventions, like abstract ideas of physics or mathematics, to practical gizmos that you could protect. And there's probably something to that. So it has a distorting effect on 
the research and development industry, just like the just like the trademark and the copyright industry have a distorting effect upon culture because, um, for example, like uh, you can't protect fashion rights exactly like in purses. So what does Louis Vuitton do and 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 uh, Christian Dior? They put their logos on their designs because that's protectable by trademark. So you see the Louis Vuitton logo and you'll see the Christian Dior logo on their purses and their dresses because now maybe that's a good idea maybe it's not but i have a suspicion that these things like this happen in response to the legal system itself like designers think how can we stop these knockoffs we can't stop them with any kind of fashion copyright because it doesn't exist so so anyway it, all these things distort society, and that it, distortion means it changes things, and it, it makes things more inefficient. It makes us more impoverished, and it harms us in one way or the other. Um, so Rothbard did see that problem with patents. I, I don't – he never did quite identify the ultimate problem with patents, um, which was the scarcity argument, and I'm not sure why. I think it, it's probably – so he, to simplify things, my, my three great thinkers would be Mises – Rothbard Hoppe. So Mises was this genius, right, with Austrian economics and praxeology. And he did emphasize scarcity, although he didn't emphasize knowledge too much. He recognized it, but if he had focused more on the role of knowledge as the other half of action, I think even he was skeptical of patents, but he sort of was mainstream on that issue. From Rothbard, reading liberalism, it sounds like it sounded like in liberalism that Mises was against patents. He mentions he, them he, as something he, that could prevent uh, normal competition. He he saw the drawbacks of patents, but he also admitted that okay. On the other hand, there's these other arguments, and so I think he was a little bit vague. Now Hayek was even slightly better on this. Uh, uh, he he saw the danger of impeding the spread of knowledge, which is what IP does, uh, especially patents, right? Um, he has this great phrase. Oh, I'm forgetting the phrase. It's in one of my blog posts. Um, uh, a fund, a fund of experience, or something like that. Like this amazing depth of technical and causal and engineering and other knowledge that we have inherited as humans um, from past generations, and it makes us richer because th the set of recipes and knowledge and ideas that we can dive into to make our use of scarce resources more efficient always increases over time. I think actually this is the explanation of, of human progress, which is why I am so adamantly opposed to IP because one half of human action is something that's an infinitely spreadable resource that can keep building over time and can spread instantaneously across the globe. Hayek even recognizes that it's one explanation for why you know, what we call developing or backward societies can catch up so quickly, China or whatever because all they have to do is just replicate the ideas that we have right that that some other country pioneered first uh, europe or britain or or or, or the west uh, or america um and so you know it didn't take china that long to start catching up because now they can make iphones and they can make you know supersonic jets and things like that right yeah. uh, because they have the recipes and and we use things that china, chinese inventors invented 2000 5000 years ago too um, but rothbard's problem was um he had this cursory i think it's his chapter in ethics of liberty it's called knowledge i think it's called knowledge true and false 
where he attacks defamation law. But then he goes into copyright and patent, and what he does is he basically he, – he redefines the word copyright to mean what he calls common law copyright, but he redefines it in a way that is basically based on contract, but it would include what patents cover. So it's it's – Rothbard's word copyright means what in his mind is a contractual system among people. Where yeah. they agree to sell something to someone else, which could be an invention, not just a copyrighted work. So some kind of device with a pattern in it, which I guess could be a book, but I think the example he gives is a mousetrap, which is an invention. But And then um, you reserve the right to copy it. So it's this kind of contorted contract argument, uh, which doesn't work in the end. But the point is… In, in, the, in the actual law, there is actually such a thing as common law copyright, even though I ear earlier said copyright had to be invented by statute and by legislation. Not invented, but it, it, it only arose because of legislation, which is true. Like copyrights based upon the statute of Anne of 1710 um, and then the U.S. Constitution and then Western uh, European systems after that. Um, however, there was some doctrine called common law copyright. But it had nothing to do with contract, and it had nothing to do with what Rothbard thinks. It was basically a type of trade secret right. It basically was this kind of right that said if you had a, a manuscript in your desk drawer of an unpublished work that you have written, and someone else steals that piece of paper, and they publish – they try to publish it first, you could go to court and get an order against them to stop it. Now. That's not what copyright law is, and that's not what Rothbard meant by common law copyright, and you could justify that by saying that, well, if you steal someone's piece of paper, then it's a type of trespass, or it's a violation of contract, or some kind of breach of trust, something like that. Um, and anyway, that reverts to a world before things were digital. Anyway, people don't have manuscripts in their desk drawers anymore that aren't published, and people publish them. Their stuff, you know, so the whole idea is totally convoluted. So. Rothbard ends up saying that you could justify what he calls common law copyright, and that would include inventions, but you couldn't justify modern copyright and patent statutes. Right. Mm -hmm. So he just didn't really drill down into and solve this problem completely. Um, and the problem is the way he worded it. Like nothing he says is really that wrong except for his reservation of rights idea and the way he thinks you can extend co contract to get some kind of quasi property right in i in in patterns of information that's his mistake i think that's a mistake a, a genuine mistake he makes and i think it's basically incompatible with his other argument in the same book against reputation rights um so it was just he just didn't see it because i mean right. he wasn't a legal he wasn't a lawyer he wasn't a legal scholar and he only could go so far it's not i mean for me this is not a, a bashing or criticism of rothbard at all the problem yeah. is you have other people that say even Rothbard, your anarchist hero, supported yeah, yeah. copyright, and I'm like, well, that's, no, that's, he didn't. Right? Yeah, and that's not even an argument because people can make mistakes. Like people like to say, well, Adam Smith said these non-free market things, and it's like, yeah, Adam Smith didn't have the benefit of Adam Smith, exactly. Um, you know, exactly. to to improve on his ideas. Hopper has Hopper accepted your views on? Um, has I, he I adopted Hoppe, your views think, on copyright? Has he avoided? Uh, yeah, he, I, I, yeah, he, he has, and he. Um, that's why I was to say my, my three greatest thinkers are like 
Mises, Rothbard, Hoppe, and, and Hoppe was able to build upon Rothbard's radicalism and his radical libertarianism and his ext and his own extensions of of Mises yeah. economics and, and Mises' own praxeology and Mises' um, – like the uh, probably the one advantage Mises has over Rothbard is that Mises did focus more on scarcity than Rothbard seems to in Rothbard's writings, and Hoppe picked up on that and integrated the scarcity part in his – so Hoppe is like a more neo-Kantian, Misesian, scarcity-emphasizing Austrian like Mises combined with Rothbard's improvements on and more radical political stuff. Right. So it's the combination of that. Um, so Hoppe, like in 1988, this was quite interesting. I didn't really come to my own views until around 1993 or 1994 when I was a brand-new baby… IP lawyer. Um, in 1988, there was a panel discussion at Mises Institute event, and I think on the panel was Rothbard, Hoppe, who was newly arrived to the U.S. and and and, and Rothbard's new uh, what's the opposite of mentor, mentee, um, protege, accolade, um, uh. <laughs> protege. Let's say protege. Okay. And uh, and uh, David Gordon and I think uh, Leland Jaeger. I think those four were up there. And someone asked the question of Hoppe. Now, this is before IP was even an issue because this is before the internet. You know, as you guys know, the internet basically started in 1995, right? Something like that. And that's when digital information started being tradable and shareable, and that's when everyone started freaking out about copyright, like thinking it's more important or starting worrying about it one way or the other. No one's paying attention to IP law before that. It was just like this arcane yeah. thing that – like tax law or, or you know, or, or states law or immigration law. Um, so this is before this even was even a topic. I mean Rothbard had only barely, barely mentioned this in that little chapter I mentioned in The Ethics of Liberty, which I think was published in 82 the first time. So Hoppe was certainly aware of what Rothbard had written, and Rothbard was sitting right next to him, and someone asked him. They said um, – Something like, what about property rights in ideas, right? And Hoppe just like off the cuff said, well, uh, if it's an idea, then it's not – if you, you can copy it, it informs your action, and you're not trespassing on anyone's property, so that's it. Like he instantly saw to the core of the issue, and that's because he has a, he had a really clear focus on basically praxeology and the importance of scarcity. Right, like its role in human action. Scarcity means that what you're doing in an action is you're employing a scarce means, but the employment and the decisions about what to do is guided by knowledge. So he recognized instantly and intuitively that these are distinct things, and that so basically his answer was no. So he's written explicitly since then that he agrees with 100% with with what I've written, which was basically built upon his stuff and Mises. Right and and other people's writings. Um, so he's a hundred percent on board with with uh, with 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 my views on all this. Yeah. Excellent. Last question of the day, Tom. Tell your Leonard Skinner story. Well, as you can see, I'm wearing my Skinner T-shirt, which I bought uh, about well, I don't know, a long time, over twenty years ago. Now it was a, it was a nineties at the Royal Concert Hall in Glasgow, and. Uh, 
I wanted to buy a T-shirt after the gig was great. Hugh Thomason of the Outlaws was playing guitar with them back then. He's dead now. Ricky Rattlesnake Medlock from Blackfoot. Um, so it was a great gig. And I wanted to buy a T-shirt. So I go back to where the official T-shirts are. And they're lousy. They're really boring, uh, overpriced T-shirts. They don't even have tour dates on them. Okay, They're just generic T-shirts. And then the top mid nineties are about twenty five bucks, equivalent twenty five bucks a t shirt. So that was really expensive. So I fuck that. I'm not buying a, a t shirt. I don't care. I'm not paying that. It's almost the same price as the concert ticket. So I went outside and there's a guy standing with like you know these knockoffs. Yep. And they were great. It had the cover of the twenties album on it, and on the back it's got the the, the Leonard Sky with the, all the tour dates on it. And there were five. It was five pounds a t shirt. I don't know how the guy made any profit, but that's not right. my problem. It was five quid a t-shirt, and it's lasted for years. <laughs> and the question is, what did Leonard Skinner lose out of that? Well, first of all, fuck them, right? If they couldn't be bothered yeah. To, to, yeah. To, to, you know, to, to provide a quality product for their fans, I'd have paid a premium, but not that much of a premium. Secondly, how did they lose? If I didn't, if I didn't buy... The, the official t-shirt. I was never done going to do that. And I didn't buy the knockoff. They've lost twice because now I'm not going everywhere advertising Leonard Skinner on my t-shirt and telling everybody about the great gig. So they've not, they haven't lost anything in that interaction whatsoever. They were never going to make any money because I wasn't going to buy that t-shirt at that price. So that, that, that's, that's my, uh, that's my knockoff um, story. Yeah. That's, they, uh, so, yeah. You did, you did forget about the part of the story where you went out on tour playing Leonard Skinner songs at the same city and the same <laughs> night as them and everyone stopped coming out to see Leonard no, that, Skinner that, and started that, seeing that your band instead. That would have been consumer fraud if I, if I pretended that I was Leonard Skinner. Yeah. Well, that's the other thing. Cover bands don't hurt their... I mean, yeah. I, I don't know if you've noticed this. Uh, you, you seem to be even more of a live music and rock fan than, than I am, right? And I like all that stuff too. Um but it seems to me that um, like in the beginning of the internet and cell phones and all this, yeah. all these artists freaked out and they had all these signs up banning people from recording like th their shitty 28 kbps <laughs> recordings from an iPhone in the audience. But I, it seems to me like in the last 10 years, they've relaxed a little bit because they've realized it well, really doesn't. bootleg their own gigs now. Well, that's what I'm saying. I mean, you know, you have always had a few outliers like the Grateful Dead that always encouraged it or they didn't give a yeah. crap. But but the official initial response was kind of a panic and a freak out. And then all these bands, no video cameras allowed. And now everyone's got a video camera in their yeah. pocket and they're like, they given up and they know, they know it doesn't really hurt them. And it's but good of if people they, are posting it to their Instagram story or their Facebook, you know? Well, yeah. It's free well, there's a guy named... Uh, People who bought bootlegs bought the albums anyway. Fans bought the, the, the stuff anyway. You know? Well, I think that's true. Although I think that argument probably can can tail off after a while because okay. you know that was more true in the like nowadays. No one buys seat. I, I don't think people, like that was probably true seven years ago or ten years ago when people were still buying CDs and they still right. buy merch, merchandise, and all yeah. that. But I think nowadays people don't. I don't think people buy music. I don't think they even pirate music anymore because who wants to carry around a thumb drive with 17 petabytes of all the world's music when you can just stream everything from Spotify? Yeah, and people listen on YouTube and they found a way to monetize that because they put ads on the 
ads, which is really annoying when you get a fifteen-second ad on a three-minute song. It's like they, they, I, I think, and I think a lot of that is again the, the 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 cultural distortion caused by copyright. A lot of these models would be different, I believe, without copyright because you know the reason YouTube can get away with that is because they can strike they strike down on a. Uh, videos that are unauthorized and that don't agree to the advertising stuff and they do that because of the six strikes law and that's because of the copyright law and that's because the artists ultimately like I, without copyright law you'd probably have lots of free alternatives that just ignored all this crap and they wouldn't do that but they probably wouldn't be as good or as curated so you would pay something for something that's fine and clean and simple um but What's interesting about – I think what you're pointing out is I think that the 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 emergence of digital copying basically, right, um, torrenting, encryption, the internet, file sharing, basically has made copyright almost unenforceable. So there is copyright now. It does have a big effect on the big players, but – there's everyone can pirate movies and songs and paintings and everyone knows this and you can't stop it. It's just like, it's like playing whack-a-mole, right? Yeah. So copyright ultimately is unenforceable because of technology, which to me is a good thing. It, it'd, be, it'd be like if there was a way to evade taxes or to, or to get marijuana or cocaine or something with complete impunity from the government, like totally hidden from their purview. That would be a Best good thing. Going. <laughs> Bitcoin. <clears throat> now, in the field of the production of physical goods, okay, I think that something like that might be happening that will undermine patents, sort of like digital technology has undermined yeah. copyright. So the ability of making um, uh, one of a kind, like just-in-time delivery or like your shirts, the T-shirts, you can just yeah. print a book from Amazon or you can mm. – get a shirt made from you know with only 10 copies made it's not a big deal um and in the future i think 3d printing will become more and more um sophisticated right and so as 3d printing becomes more of a real force i think that's going to undermine the patent system because then people will be able to have a printer in their basement sure. or down at their at their co-op's house down the street and they'll be able to get a pirated file of a design of something and just go print whatever the hell they, they can print their own iphone or something you know eventually yeah. um and they won't need permission and the patent holders won't be able to stop it so i think that those are two good things is that the ways that the the international trade and the just-in-time delivery system and manufacturing on demand and 3d printing and torrenting and encryption and file sharing and maybe bitcoin to some degree it's all helping to undermine these are these horrible archaic wealth destroying systems all right well, okay. well thank you for rejoining us on the show for round two great speaking to you and you guys at home tune in soon for more <laughs>